Many of you know we've been working through the Lord's Prayer. We're getting to the end of it today, and I hope you'll see it's a very fitting ending. Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Alexander Solzhenitsyn lived in Russia when Joseph Stalin was the dictator there. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested by the authorities and sent off to a slave labour camp, a place a bit like a Nazi concentration camp. And he wrote about his experiences. He wrote about the evil that he saw and that he suffered. And he didn't downplay it. He didn't downplay how evil those guards were and the way they mistreated him. But he also said, it's not that there are evil people over there and good people over here. He said, the line separating evil and good passes not between countries or between classes or between political viewpoints. The line separating good and evil passes down every single human heart. He was saying there is evil in this world and there is evil in every human heart. And I don't know if he was a Christian. He had a funny relationship with Christianity. But what he said was true and a Christian thing. Christianity is not a Disneyfied religion that pretends that the world's basically fine and let's just sing a few songs and feel uplifted and close our eyes to any problems. Christianity is realistic about the evil in the world and in us and gives an answer. And so Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, verse 13, deliver us from evil. Now, my aim this morning, as we consider that ending of the Lord's Prayer, is to get us all praying, deliver us from evil. Uh, And I'm going to try to do it this way. You see, we won't do that if we don't take seriously the problem of evil, if we just think that's too nasty, shut my eyes to it. We also won't pray it if we think evil rules and it's just all terrible and there's no hope of change. Why pray? You also won't pray deliver us from evil if you haven't had God change your heart and make you hate evil. So this message this morning, I'm going to try to address those three barriers that get in the way of us really praying, deliver us from evil. Now, first of all, you might have noticed something. You might have noticed I've said deliver us from evil. And you've probably got a Bible that says, if you look at verse 13, I don't know about your Bible, but I suspect most of them here say deliver us from the evil one. So I better comment on that. Uh, The evil one, by the way, means the devil, Satan, the angel who rebelled against God and became God's enemy. Now, the words here in verse 13 can be translated either way. Perfectly possible to translate them as either the evil one or as evil. Each translation is equally valid if you look at those words in themselves. But I'm going to go with the 
the traditional translation, deliver us from evil, for a few reasons I won't go into now. One of them is people who know better than me have persuaded me that that translation fits better with other places in the Bible, even though both are possible. And it actually doesn't make a big difference because it still includes the evil one. But I think it's a broader prayer than just deliver us from him. It's a prayer against him and all the evil in us and in the world. So I'm going to stick with the traditional translation, deliver us from evil. I'm going to do this in three sections. Here's the first one, how this prayer fits in our lives. If I'm going to persuade us all to really pray it, we need to see first how it fits in our lives. Now, I'm going to sound for a while as if I've gone off topic and forgotten the prayer. But stay with me, there is a purpose. And to see this, let's be clear what Matthew's Gospel is about. Would you just flick back to chapter 1, verse 1? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's Gospel starts with Jesus being the Christ. That means the promised king. It starts with Jesus being the son of David. That makes him the promised king. Matthew's big theme is Jesus came to be king. Read through Matthew's Gospel and you find it keeps on about Jesus as king. He came to be the promised king. But how did Jesus become king? How could anyone become one of the people in his kingdom? Well, the answer to that is also in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew wants to get it clear right at the start. And the answer is like this. Children, do you know what the name Jesus means? Do you know what the name Jesus means? The answer is in verse 21. Verse 21. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save people from their sins. How would he save people from their sins? Well, that comes later in Matthew, right towards the end, where you find a sign. Matthew describes a sign that says this is the king of the Jews. And that sign is on a cross. And that sign is above Jesus nailed to a cross and dying, and dying to take the punishment his people deserve for their sins, for disobeying God, for acting as if God is not king. He's just an advisor and a not very good one, so most of the time we ignore his what we call advice because we think we know better than him. What a terrible attitude to God. But you see, Jesus died to take that on himself and take the punishment so we could be forgiven. That's how he was king. That's how he had a people to be king over, because he died so they could be forgiven. Now, there is good news. There is good news. I don't know what qualifies as good news in your mind. When we first moved to Loughborough, we bought a Loughborough Echo and it had good news. There was a fire in a bin and it was out by the time the fire brigade got there. We thought, what sort of town have we come to that that gets in the local paper? It must be a pretty dead place. That doesn't qualify as good news, no. But this is good news. You can have all your sins wiped out. That you can have 
all of your guilt, everything wrong about you, forgiven. That you can know for sure that God doesn't hold any of it against you. Wow. What do you have to do to get that? What does God require of you if he's going to give you such a big thing? Simply this. Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Repent, change your mind about yourself and about him, Jesus, and believe this good news. It's as simple as that. Have you done so? Will you do so? Now, I've only told you part of the good news because Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. That includes getting us forgiven. But there's more. It says he will save us from our sins. And maybe you're starting to see how this links with the Lord's Prayer. If not, don't worry, I'll get there. Because you see, saving us from our sins, yes, it includes forgiveness, but it also includes getting our hearts changed. A change of heart. I'll give you an example. Not very long ago, it might have been in the last year, I can't remember, someone asked me about being baptised. And, as I usually do, I went to talk to her. And I asked her various questions. And I heard how she understood about Jesus dying so we could be forgiven. And I heard that she didn't just understand it, she believed it. And I heard that she was clear that it doesn't depend on us and what we do, it depends on Jesus and what he did. And so I said to her, well, in that case... In that case, since Jesus has done it all and it doesn't depend on you, why not just carry on sinning? If all your sins wiped out, if you're forgiven, if it's all definite, why not just carry on sinning? And she looked at me as if, what sort of an idiot are you? (laughs) She looked at me as if I completely lost the plot. And she simply said, but I don't want to carry on sinning. And I thought, right, we'll baptise her. Yeah? Because, you see, becoming a Christian isn't just making a decision, I I accept what's written in the Bible and I believe it's true. We've, We've got to do that. But it isn't just that. It's a work of God in our hearts, changing our hearts. So we don't want to stay in our sins. We want to be saved from our sins. So do you want all the sin and the evil out of your life? Do you pray, deliver us from evil? Do you see the connection? It's all based on the work of Jesus. We need forgiveness. We need heart change. And it's only then we're really going to pray, deliver us from evil. Yes, thousands of people might have prayed, deliver us from evil, at the Queen's funeral. But it's only when you've had that heart change you're really going to pray. Father, I see that sin is no longer desirable and following Jesus is desirable. Deliver us from evil. That's how it fits into our lives. Next, we need to hear this, how it fits, how this prayer fits into our world. How it fits into our world. To pray deliver us from evil, we need to understand what's going on in our world now. And I want to show you one teaching the Bible has about The world now, our time in history, uh, one teaching but put in two different ways. So, first of all, here's here's the first way I'm going to put it. We live in the overlap of the ages. That's how our world at this time in history is the 
overlap of the ages. I'll try to illustrate this. Children, who's the head of the UK? You've already been asked this in the children's talk, so the answer is easy. King Charles III. I'm still not used to calling him that. I nearly said Prince Charles, because it's so new, isn't it? He's the king. But, children, if you went to the post office to buy some stamps, whose face or head appears on the money you use and the stamps you get given? Queen Elizabeth II. You see, we've got a new king, but there's still a lot around as if Queen Elizabeth is queen. We're living in a bit of a time of overlap. And that's true on the bigger scale. We live in the overlap of the ages. The Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, prophesied a time when God's promised king would come. And the kingdom of God would be glorious. And it would be the age of God's kingdom and God's rule going out across the whole world. And the New Testament says that time has come. We're no longer waiting for it. It has come. But the New Testament says the old age hasn't gone. Evil hasn't yet gone. We're living in the overlap of the ages. The old age is continuing, but the new age has come and the two are overlapping. Some are note-takers if you want to note down some Bible verses, because I haven't given you proof from the Bible, have I? It's, it's there across lots of places in the Bible. But if you want to note down some verses to check up later, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11 says we're living in the time of fulfilment, the time of the new age. But then you could note down Galatians 1, verse 4. Galatians 1 verse 4 says, but we're still living in the present evil age. Or you could note down Romans 13 verse 12. Romans 13 verse 12 says, our age is like it was at 7am this morning. Okay, it doesn't say those words, but it's saying that sort of thing. What was it like at 7am this morning? Were you awake? I won't ask you to put your hand up. What was it like? Was it night or was it day? It was sort of a bit in between, wasn't it? Because the sun had risen, but the darkness hadn't yet been fully dispelled. And Romans 13 verse 12 says, our age is like that. Jesus, the sun has risen and his light is spreading and the darkness cannot defeat it, but it hasn't yet, it hasn't yet pushed out all the darkness. There's still a lot of darkness around. But full daylight will come when? When Jesus returns. And then we'll no longer be in the overlap of the ages. Now, I'm now going to give you a different way of putting the same truth. We're trying to understand our time in history. Here's a complete, here's another way of putting the same thing. Evil is defeated, but it's not yet removed. Evil has already been defeated, but it's not yet removed. In the 1960s, my mother lived in a very remote place in the Philippines. And in villages around there, there was trouble. People were being mysteriously attacked. Do you know why? There was a Japanese soldier still living in the area and not accepting that Japan had been defeated. Now, notice I said she lived there in the 1960s. There is no doubt that Japan had been defeated. 
1945. But this soldier was still able to cause quite a lot of trouble until people came and removed him. I don't know what they did to him, but it got dealt with. But not until a long time after the 1945 defeat. Evil in the world was defeated in around the year 30 AD. Colossians chapter 2 says, Jesus on the cross triumphed over evil. He has defeated it. But 1 Peter 5 says, the devil walks around like a roaring lion looking for someone to eat. By the way, it then says, but Christian, you can withstand him because he's already defeated. He's looking for someone to eat, but he, he's already defeated. And one day he'll be thrown into hell. Now, what does all this mean for us? I've given you some doctrine there, some teaching to understand our time in history. The overlap of the ages, evil is defeated but not yet removed. What does it mean for us? It means be realistic. Be realistic. We've got three enemies still around. The world, the flesh and the devil. In other words, society that's anti-God, the sin that's still in us and the fallen angel who hates God. And they're still active and they're still troublesome and they can still do damage. Be realistic, but be optimistic because those three enemies are all defeated. They're on their way out. Christian brothers and sisters, sin may have power and be strong and be difficult to fight, but it has no authority over you. I'll give you one example. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see both sides, realism and optimism. Trouble still, but Jesus rules. We've had how this deliver us from evil fits in our lives, how it fits in our understanding of the world, and now, thirdly, how it fits in our prayers. How it fits in our prayers. In Britain in World War II, there was a blackout. In other words, you mustn't let a light show at night time, because otherwise it might attract the bombers. And if you hadn't got your blackout curtain closed properly and light was shining from your house... Someone might knock on your door or might shout, put that light out, don't you know there's a war on? If you were acting in a way that wasn't fitting with the war, that was a phrase, don't you know there's a war on? Now, don't you know there's a war on is a good phrase for Christians. Because we've just heard the enemy doesn't accept that he's been defeated. He hasn't accepted defeat. We need to be on much more of a serious war footing. We can't have Christianity as a hobby on the side. It cannot be a hobby on the side to fit in, when you can, around the more serious business of pursuing the comfortable lifestyle you want. Is that your approach? A hobby on the side to fit in, when you can, around the more serious business of, I want this lifestyle, I want these comforts. I've got these aims. You can't do that. Don't you know there's a war on? We've got enemies around that are still troublesome and haven't accepted defeat. So pray, 
We are in Matthew 6, verse 13, still, if you're wondering, pray, deliver us from evil. In three areas of your prayer life, I hope you have such a thing as a prayer life, simply means that you pray regularly. In these three areas, as you pray for yourself, do you pray against your sins? This is really basic. I haven't got anything fancy to say here. I'm just reminding you of something really basic. Do you pray against your sins? This is found throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Psalms. In the New Testament, Paul's letters give multiple prayers against sin in our lives. Do you pray them? Do you pray seriously against your sin? Do you pray specifically against your sin? Are there sins that you wouldn't say deliver me from that one because you don't want to admit it's a sin? Or you don't want to let it go? Do you pray now against sin? What do I mean by now against sin? I'll give an example. In the 300s AD... The stronghold of Christianity was not Europe, it was North Africa. And the most famous Christian there, who's been a massive influence in church history, was a man called Augustine. Now, Augustine, before he was a Christian, was a very immoral man. Carried on in all sorts of immorality. But he had a Christian mother who was an influence on him, and so he did pray. But he prayed this... God, make me a moral, pure man, but not yet. Now, it almost sounds funny if it wasn't so bad and so sad. God, make me a moral, pure man, but not yet. Do you have any of his attitude? Or do you pray, deliver me now, rid me of this sin, this favourite sin, this repeated sin. Please get rid of it as soon as possible. Christian brothers and sisters, do you seriously pray for yourself? Deliver me from evil. But what about your prayers for the church? As you pray for the church, I hope you do. Take seriously, what does it say in verse 13? Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us. You see, it's not just an individual prayer. It's a prayer for the church. How did the prayer start? Verse 9. Our Father. We're praying, our Father, deliver us from evil. It's for us together to pray. As we pray for ourselves as a church, not just individuals who happen to be in the same room today. Deliver us from Satan's tricks to divide and disunite us. Do you pray that? Deliver us from behaviour in the church that would dishonour Jesus and spoil our witness, which is what really happens when, for example, a church leader turns out to be a hypocrite. Deliver us. Deliver us from wrong teaching that has killed off so many churches and turned them into just dead social clubs. Christian brothers and sisters, do you pray for the church? Deliver us from evil. What about third area? Do you pray for the world? I hope so. As you pray for the world, how do you react when you hear about destruction and torture and death in Ukraine? I hope it moves you. I hope it makes you groan and sad and angry. Is it right to be angry? Yes, it's right to be angry. There's so much evil in the world. 
And it should make us pray and give and do what we can. But it should also make us do this. Pray and really mean, really pray, the last prayer in the Bible. Do you know what the last prayer in the Bible is? Almost the last words in the Bible. Do you know? Oh, thank you, Mike. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. It should make us pray this. There is so much evil in the world. Come, Lord Jesus. Come to judge, to rule, to make this world new. Do you pray that? Come and deliver us from evil. You see, that's ultimately what deliver us from evil means. That's why this is a fitting end to the Lord's Prayer. Because at the heart of New Testament spirituality, at the heart of real Christianity, is this. I want Jesus to come back. At the heart of it is looking forward to Jesus coming back. Do you? Well then. Do you pray this? Deliver us from evil. Let's pray for that now.